Okay, well, welcome back to Writing Muse and Writing Mentor. And today's podcast is definitely on the mentoring side, although it does sound philosophical. My title is How to Write. It sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? And of course, at one level, it is. On some days, you can, as Hemingway advised, simply open a vein and bleed, and the words will come tumbling out. But on other days, if you're at all like me, you hate writing more than keeping a dental appointment, enduring an audit, or even visiting your least liked relative. So it's both simple and it's not. And that may be why there are so many books that are offering advice on the practice. In fact, I hesitated a little before doing this podcast, before joining my words to the myriad voices already available. When you think about it, the phrase how to write nearly invariably involves another word, and that word is should. Just this morning on one of the writing lists to which I subscribe, a participant wrote, fiction should imitate the way people normally speak. Okay, as one of my fictional characters would say, whatever. Fiction should do that? Really? Says who? And what else should it do? There are a whole lot of instances of should out there. Writers should use the active tone. Writing should show, not tell. Good writing should be expository. Literary writing should be challenging. And so on. I have so many problems with that word because to me it always carries a whiff of the sanctimonious. Should implies first off that you're clearly not already doing it, whatever this marvelous thing is, and second, that you really ought to have somehow known about it and been practicing it already. The reality is language evolves. Sometimes that's cause for celebration and sometimes it's cause for disappointment depending on the situation, one's point of view, but that it involves is not in question. Writers can choose to evolve along with it or not, but there's no should in this story. There are ways of writing that will make your communications clearer. There are certain elements to incorporate in your writing that will make it more publishable. There are actions and there are consequences of those actions or for that matter, inactions. And none of that includes the word should. So I'm wary at the beginning of this endeavor of the very act of teaching because traditionally instructors tend to use the word should quite a lot. And I just don't believe that it belongs in writing. So you can feel free to virtually slap my hand whenever you hear me say it. Let's start with the basics. You are a writer already. I can't imagine you're listening to this podcast by accident. If the title interested you, then you are already someone who writes. As with most endeavors, for better or for worse, we generally start writing long before we realize we need instruction in its practice. Not everyone, of course, comes to that realization now. There's a certain hubris that accompanies many artistic enterprises, and writing, unfortunately, is foremost among them we're very quick to fall in love with our own words. This is a disease particularly prevalent among beginning to intermediate writers whose mothers no doubt gave them far too much 
uncritical encouragement at an early age and whose use of the thesaurus might best have been severely curtailed. Writers as distinguished as Samuel Johnson and Stephen King have warned against becoming too enamored of one's work and have cautioned writers to excise those passages they love most, first, second, and always. This applies to the mechanics of writing as well. It's always been interesting to see how many people quote unquote know a grammatical rule or accepted usage to the point of correcting others only to find that what they quote unquote knew was in fact incorrect. And I have to wonder, do chemists have this problem? Do chemistry students assert with confidence that Satyev was wrong? Will historians claim that the battle in 1066 did not in fact take place? Yet writers giddily misplace apostrophes with wild abandon and resent being told that they've substituted a possessive for a plural. It's a very curious thing. So while I know that anyone listening to this is a writer, my hope is that you're a writer with an open mind. I'm not here to tell you what you should do. Rather, I'm here to tell you what you can do. To open a door or two, to give you ideas you can tuck away and use someday when the writing is hell and you wish you'd chosen something to do that's less frustrating, like bricklaying, for example, or skydiving. The real question, though, that I hope you've begun to answer in your own life is the most fundamental of all. Why write? The primary reason for writing anything is to communicate with others, to stimulate interest or action from your reader. Or you might use writing to help you to reflect on your experiences and learn from them. When we write, we're writing to answer some need in ourselves, and that need is accomplished when others read what we write. Plus, as you probably already know, writing has a lot of benefits. It's fixed, and so it's kind of more permanent than a conversation you might have. You can keep coming back to a previous piece of writing, and you may gain more benefit from reviewing it as a result. One of the things that I suggest, I won't say should, but I suggest is for you to take your time around anything and everything that you write. You don't have to go with your first draft. In fact, you probably don't want to go with your first draft. And the writing process may take many forms, both visually and textually. Looking back at your previous experiences of writing can help you learn more about your writing style. Remember also that in writing, as in all things, there are different seasons to your life. And what you write now will probably be very different from what you'll be writing a year or five years from now. Cherish all those seasons. Writing offers you time and space to redraft and refocus your message. In this way, perhaps, it's even easier than spoken communication. When you're speaking, you have to think of words and immediately release them to the audience. And once spoken, there's no opportunity to edit them before they are heard. The process of writing is something from which you can constantly learn and feedback and reflection on your writing can help you develop your own style and voice. 
I strongly, strongly, strongly invite you to consider joining a critique group or a workshop. Not only will you have the benefit of others' eyes on your work, but the act of critiquing others' work will also inevitably and necessarily help you improve yours. My favorite place to do this online is the Internet Writing Workshop, where you can choose from a plethora of genres and find communities that will both challenge and support your writing. You can also find local writers groups via libraries and bookshops or associations in which you might have memberships. Before we end this podcast today, I want to spend a few minutes exploring the relationship between reading and writing. There is no question that reading a lot makes us better writers. Reading and writing are two sides of the same coin. If you subscribe to my newsletter, Words That Breathe, you'll notice that I talk about reading being breathing in and writing being breathing out. As Anna Lamott points out, the converse is also true. Writing makes you a better reader. Here's what she says. One reads with a deeper appreciation and concentration, knowing now how hard writing is, especially how hard it is to make it look effortless. You begin to read with a writer's eyes. You focus in a new way. You study how someone portrays his or her version of things in a way that is new and bold and original. I love that quote. In another excellent book, and yes, you should obtain a copy and read it cover to cover, Stephen King, whose book is On Writing, A Memoir of the Craft, explains why reading is so important for those who want to write. Here's what he says. If you want to be a writer, you must do two things above all others. Read a lot and write a lot. There's no way around those two things that I'm aware of. No shortcut. I'm a slow reader, but I usually get through 70 or 80 books a year, mostly fiction. I don't read in order to study the craft. I read because I like to read. It's what I do at night, kicked back in my blue chair. Similarly, I don't read fiction to study the art of fiction, but simply because I like stories. Yet, there is a learning process going on. The real importance of reading is that it creates an ease and intimacy with the process of writing. One comes to the country of the writer with one's papers and identification pretty much in order. Constant reading will pull you into a place, a mindset if you like the phrase, where you can write eagerly and without self-consciousness. It also offers you a constantly growing knowledge of what has been done and what hasn't, what is trite and what is fresh, what works and what just lies there dying or dead on the page. The more you read, the less apt you are to make a fool of yourself with your pen or word processor. I love that that passage too. So should aspiring writers use a different technique when reading? David Foster Wallace suggested a variation of the, on the Feynman technique to teach yourself to write better. Learning to write, he says, requires learning to pay attention in different ways. 
Here's what he says. Not just reading a lot, but paying attention to the way the sentences are put together, the clauses are joined, the way the sentences go to make up a paragraph. Exercises as boneheaded as you take a book you really like, you read a page of it three, four times, put it down, and then try to imitate it word for word so that you can feel your own muscles trying to achieve some of the effects that the page of text you like did. If you're like me, it will be in your failure to be able to duplicate it that you'll actually learn what's going on. It sounds really, really stupid, but in fact, you can read a page of text, right? And, oh, that was pretty good. But you don't get any sense of the infinity of choices that were made in that text until you start trying to reproduce them. David Foster Wallace talks about a technique or an exercise that I personally have not ever tried, but I've read that passage many times, and every time I read it, including right now as I read it to you, I think, I should try that. I suggest maybe you could try it too and see if it helps you. Reading helps you hone your writing skills in other ways too. As in figuring out what plot is, how you can lose yourself and find yourself in books. The last quote I want to, I want to share with you today is by Matt Haig, who said, Every time I read a great book, I felt I was reading a kind of map, a treasure map. And the treasure I was being directed to was in actual fact myself. But each map was incomplete, and I would only locate the treasure if I read all the books. And so the process of finding my best self was an endless quest. And books themselves seem to reflect this idea, which is why the plot of every book ever can be boiled down to someone is looking for something. In much the same way, Aaron Sorkin has talked about plot. Someone needs to go to Chicago. Someone's something or someone is keeping them from going to Chicago. They overcome the difficulty and either get to Chicago, making for a happy ending, or don't, making for a more dismal ending. But either way, you have to start with the desire that they want to go to Chicago. Think about that when you're considering how to write. Imagine yourself in your protagonist's shoes. Where is it your protagonist wants to go? What do they want to do? And what's going to stand in their way? And now enjoy unraveling that whole thing. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm Jeanette de Beauvoir, and this has been another episode of Writing Muse and Writing Mentor. See you next time.